You are listening to Spacetime Mind. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Oh, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Space, time, mind, mind, space, time, mind, mind, space, time, mind, mind, space, time, space, time, mind, mind, space, time, should somehow, somehow do a Jedi mind meld. So hello everybody, welcome to Space Time Mind. It's been a while, but it's summer. What do you want from us? I'm here today with David Paraplochik from Kent State University. Hello again, folks. And I'm uh, Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. I'm in New Jersey. You are in... I'm currently in Ohio, uh, in uh, in Akron, Ohio, but I just uh, flew in from uh, from Dublin uh, last night, so I'm still feeling the jet lag a little bit. So if you fall asleep or something, um, we can oh, just no. edit that out. We'll yeah yeah. I'll fill okay. in. I'll do my imitation of you. <laughs> nice. We uh, a little bit before we talked about uh, pain because we're both writing some stuff about pain. Yeah, big shout out to uh, Jen Corns uh, who is editing this. Uh, this uh, volume for am I allowed to say all these things or is this all? I think it's not a secret. Yeah, I think I think it shouldn't be a secret, even if it is. <laughs> so I'm just gonna make that call. So yeah, we're breaking the news right here. Yeah, so we're breaking. Jennifer Renee Corns, who's where is she? She's in Edinburgh. She is in Glasgow. Glasgow. Yes, and she is a pain person, an expert in the philosophy of pain, and um, a member in something called the Value of Suffering Project out there. That yeah. gets into the metaphysics of pain and ethical dimensions of pain, all sorts of really interesting things. And she has uh, got a forthcoming edited volume, I think, called the Philosophy of Pain or the Handbook of the Philosophy of Pain. Yeah, the Rutledge Handbook of the Philosophy of Pain. That's right. And um, she circulated the table of contents to the authors that are working on chapters, and I was pleased to see that your chapter and my chapter are back to back. That's right. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, right chapter on. buddies. <laughs> so you're supposed yeah. to be writing a chapter about the relationship between pain and consciousness. That's right. Yeah, consciousness and pain. And uh, uh, I'm going to be arguing. I guess we'll talk about this a little bit more later on in in detail. But uh, yeah, I'm going to be arguing contrary to I think pretty much everybody uh, that pain need not be conscious. That that pain can be a non-conscious mental state. Uh, so um so yeah we'll see we'll see how it goes uh, you know we'll talk a little bit more I think later on about uh about the structure of the uh, the, the view but yeah that's the basic that's the basic upshot and the thing that uh, Jennifer asked me to write is an article on pain in non biological organisms hmm. and I assume that what she has in mind is that I would draw on my expertise as a science fiction nerd <laughs> I've been. <laughs> Also, I messed around with artificial life a long time ago, and I, I had these autonomous agent simulations I wrote a few papers about. I don't know if you remember my Framsticks talks from maybe a decade ago. 
Yeah, I actually um, I was very impressed by the uh, that stuff. That, uh, you were working with um, another CUNY Graduate Center uh, person, uh, Mike Collins. That's right. And it was actually from him who I first uh, heard about this uh, these A Life things, and I was just blown away. I was um, I actually used that, um, or at least what I remember from it, in my courses all the time. That you guys were building these um, these worms that had one of them had no um, sensory apparatus for chemotaxis. One of them had sensory apparatus, but no memory. Right. And the other one had a very, very, very rudimentary memory, where it was able to, um, where it was able to take a snapshot of what happened just a moment ago and compare it to what is happening now. And what I remember, the graphs were really just very striking and vivid. That uh, that uh, the one with no memory but sensory apparatus did just about as well as the one with no sensory apparatus at all. So it's right. sort of um, a testament to how sensory processes by themselves unbuttressed by any form of memory are uh, uh, biologically useless um, as far as I could tell so nice a uh, lot, lot of implications but you know you might you might you might churn out uh, an argument for some uh, some kind of functionalism there and uh, it was all it was just a really um vivid model of, of the simplest possible form of memory because I remember it was like it was like a five-node network, if, if right. I recall correctly, and that, it was just it blew my mind that that middle layer, the three nodes that constituted the rudimentary memory, were um, were so so crucial to the success of this organism. So um, yeah, I still use that. I still use that today. And oh, I'm glad to hear classes. it. Yeah, definitely. So if people want to check this out, I'll, I'll post a link to it. Um, one of the main things that I, uh, publications that came out of this is a single-authored piece of mine called uh, "Varieties of Representations in Evolved Neural Networks." Evolved in embodied neural networks, but then there's also a thing I co-authored with um, two former students, Mike Collins, who you just mentioned, and then a guy named Alex Vershagen. Um, um, that's called evolving mental content, something like that. I, I don't remember the names of my own articles, but I will post links to this uh, if people want to see yeah. the uh, the confluence of artificial life and artificial intelligence and philosophy. I'm a believer in a, a slogan that I think is due to Fred Dretzky. And it goes something like, uh, if you want to understand something, you should figure out how to build it. It's actually interesting that he, he puts it in negative. It's you don't understand how something, well, you don't understand something unless you can build it or until you can build it or so on. I, I thought that's a, that was a pretty strong claim. That was a pretty strong claim. That, that's always appealed to me. Like I've always, you know, really, uh, when I grapple with things in philosophy, I really wonder, like, what would it take to build this sort of thing? I think we, um, I don't know why that really clicks with me i feel like that's when when i i grasp an explanation of something is when i have enough of a grasp to see how it would literally work mechanically that you yeah. could you know really make it i, I think a, a kind of related thought that's relevant at least to a lot of philosophy of mind and language is to think about well how how would something be learned and there's a long tradition that goes you know into like uh, uh the early modern uh, philosophers, they try to take a lot of philosophical problems and, and think about it in terms of, well, how would you learn, like, how would you acquire these ideas? And yeah. and that was a very productive program in 20th century uh, empiricistic philosophy, it was really thinking hard about, like, well, if there is such a thing as reference, or if there are such a thing as, like, private applications of the word pain, well, under what conditions would someone learn that word? Right. So really thinking about the origins of things uh, helps sh shed light on um, our grasp of you know the analysis of that concept. If I could throw in a third one, so we have uh, it's useful to think about how to how to build a certain thing, or how certain it can be built. It's also useful to think of how it certainly can be acquired. But and but these are um, 
uh, arguably individualistic um, uh, uh, thoughts to have. But a more collective one is uh, that's that's related here. I think is useful, and it comes up as you know. I always have to mention Brandon because I, uh, uh, you know, big fan of his work on philosophy. You're in love with that guy. I'm not in love. I just I think the view is very interesting to explore. I think it's very interesting to, to explore, and you know, for all its weaknesses as much as its strengths. Uh, but regardless, he's got this uh, strategy, oftentimes, of well, what social uh, value? would uh, or what social function, social purpose would be served by introducing a particular locution or expression or mode of speech into something. So an example of this would be, you know, so knowledge attributions, right? Uh, let's not uh, try to come up with necessary and sufficient conditions for X knows that P uh, or S knows that P. Um, let's let's ask ourselves, what uh, what's the use of knowledge attributions in a social uh, pragmatic context uh, or the pragmatic use in a social context? and um, uh, what's interesting is that, you know, when you attribute knowledge to somebody, you say, I say, Pete knows that P, uh, I suppose I'm talking to Aoife, and I say of you that you know that P. Um, what I've done is not only have I attributed a particular commitment to you, but I've also undertaken um, that commitment myself. And so that's a, that's, that's a useful um, thing to, it's a useful uh, uh, tool to have in your pragmatic um, toolkit to be able to not only attribute commitments to somebody else, but simultaneously take on those commitments uh, yourself. Because, um, you know, if I say that you know this as opposed to you merely believe it, um, if, I, if I just say that you believe it, then I've just attributed the commitment to you. But if I right. say you know it, then I've taken on the commitment myself as well. And so that's that's another, that's of a piece with the two that you mentioned, but it's a more social, uh, social one uh, that I also find to be useful in um, thinking about, especially linguistic uh, practices, of course. You know, one thing I like about all three of these uh, approaches is the emphasis they put on the third person. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a very right. it's a very common move, and um, for a lot of people, especially first entering philosophy, to to adopt a a heavily first person perspective. I think uh, you know I encounter this in a lot of my uh, students that are that are you know they're philosophy majors. They've taken a lot of philosophy classes. They have uh, philosophical very philosophical thoughts. They've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And a lot of them really come to this from what, what I see as a very Cartesian perspective. They really are thinking in a very uh, individualistic or first-person sort of way about like whether their mind is the only thing that exists and how would they know that there's anything else besides them. And um, it's very difficult to see that maybe you could start philosophizing from a different perspective, from uh, a different point of view to, to cast things in terms of putting an putting a emphasis on third-person attributions. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's uh, probably one of the foundational um, or pivotal commitments that you and I uh, that you and I share, and that puts us uh, in contrast to I think the vast majority of philosophy being done not just by your undergraduates, but I mean in general, both today and uh, and historically, is that we we favor uh, starting with the third person perspective, or at least giving the third person perspective uh, uh, its proper due. And um, I'm actually quite puzzled by why the um, the first person perspective is such has such a stronghold over both the undergraduate uh, mind uh, if we can speak that way um, but also in the history of philosophy I mean you know you only see these um, uh, third person heavy or third person centric uh, views emerging in, in philosophy or at least to my knowledge maybe I'm just ignorant about the history of philosophy but it seems to me that you see them emerging in the 20th century relatively late with uh, folks like uh, um, the later Wittgenstein and Dewey and um, Heidegger and uh, 
uh, Rorty, of course, and Sellers and so on. I mean, uh, Dennett. Uh, that, that's all 20th century phenomenon. And it's, um, it's uh, unclear to me why the thing didn't appear earlier, why there wasn't more of a... Um, more of why it wasn't at least even why there wasn't as many first person people as third person people um until recently so that i i think that i i'm puzzled by the sociological uh yeah. fact here i mean what 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 accounts for this and uh i um i suspect that there's actually a deep explanation i think it's not an accident that people start off thinking that way and um maybe to connect it a little bit to the topic that we're going to be uh covering today the, the the pain topic is um i just taught uh, Rorty's uh, Philosophy and the Mirror of Nature in a course on uh, the history of, tw of um, 20th century philosophy uh, this past semester. And um, I love that book. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's really, uh, you know, and, and again, it's uh, just the, you know, um, one can love something without thinking that everything in it is true, of course. Uh, but I, I do actually uh, agree with a lot of the points that Rorty makes and the kind of the orientation, certainly, from which he's making these points is uh, very um, congenial, I find. Uh, but um, he, uh, you know, he, he's got this, uh, he, he thinks that the mind-body problem, or at least one version of the mind-body problem, the one that has to do with pain specifically, uh, comes down ultimately uh, to whether you think that there's anything that's uh, 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 incorrigibly accessed or incorrigibly known or any incorrigible reports. Um, and that translates into whether that issue uh, can be seen as as the issue of whether whether you believe that you are what I like to call and this is a, a term that I coined in the class epistemically transparent in the sense that like we think like okay here's this like the stapler over here right well given enough time enough resources enough ingenuity um, there's nothing about that stapler that is closed from you it's a, from view it's it's um, you know you can study it and you can know everything there is to know about it. Um, and uh, from the outside, not being the stapler yourself, you can know the, the, the stapler through and through. It is and that is epistemically transparent. Um, and I think a lot of people hold the intuition uh, that uh, we, humans or conscious beings, are not like that. That if I took, let's say, you instead of the stapler and I tried to study you from the outside, uh, for as long as possible with all the resources and all the ingenuity I could muster, there'd still be something about you that I could never know, that I could never capture. You are, in that sense, to some degree anyway, uh, epistemically opaque to me. Um, and this, you know, this gives rise to the kind of a, a Nagel thought experiment about, um, uh, you know, whether we can know what it's like to be a bat. And uh, Nagel, of course, famously concludes that the bat is, to some extent, epistemically opaque to us. And um, it gives rise to uh, all sorts of dualist um, intuitions. And I think that that's really a pivotal issue is whether, yeah. whether you think of third person access as being sort of thorough and complete in that way, or you think that there's a magical something uh, about you that nobody from the outside, from the third person could ever, could ever know. And I think that, um, you know, it shapes a lot of my views that I hold the, uh, the first thing that, that I think, uh, you know, that I am not uh, epistemically opaque to any degree. Given enough time and ingenuity and resources and so on, a third person accessor can access everything that there is about me. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, a, that's not a view that many people feel comfortable with, uh, not a view that many people uh, in, in philosophy share. Yeah, and there's, a, there's a, a whole bunch of arguments that 
in philosophy, uh, especially in philosophy of mind, that you can broadly describe as um, making a certain epistemological claim about uh, people or about minds, um, and then trying to draw a metaphysical or ontological conclusion from that epistemological claim. And there's a there's a lot of different kinds of epistemological claims, but one way to kind of unite them all is to say that there's something special. There's a special, there's something special in the way that we know, um, for example, of our own pains. There's something special about the way that I know that I'm in pain. And um, it follows from that specialness that pain itself is special, that the that what it is for something to be pain, the existence of pain, is a special kind of existence. Um, and, it, and so we wind up then with a kind of dualism where uh, the non-special things would include the staplers. There's nothing really special about the way staplers are known. Anybody can know a stapler. Um, but there's something special about the way minds are known. Like, like you were saying that, you know, only you can really know everything there is to know about your own mind. Yeah, and I think that this uh, this comes up in a lot of cases. I mean, you know, there's like you say, there's a million different thought experiments. Uh, one of them is um, uh, the famous Frank Jackson Mary thought experiment, where you know she has all the third person knowledge, but uh, but it's only when she get that when she gets that first person access that she really learns something new. Uh, that's supposed to be the intuition that's pumped there. The inverted spectrum thought experiment, where um, you know, we can have all the functional facts, all the physical third-person facts uh, fixed between me and you, but nevertheless, uh, my red could be your green or whatever. And how is that to be determined? Well, by the fact that I, from the inside, know that my thing is like this, and you, from the inside, know that your thing is like that. And if only we could compare, we would find out, again, only introspectively, uh, that um, our things are different. But uh, so that's another one. And then, of course, um, Leibniz's mill, Leibniz's famous, uh, you know, you're walking around my brain and uh, uh, my brain is this giant mechanism and you're this little thing and you're walking around it and you have third person access, of course, but you don't have first person access and you're just never going to be able to see the perceptions, he calls them, um, that, that, that are in there. At least that's how it's mostly translated in the monadology. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's all sorts of these. There's, there's many others. I'm sure I haven't mentioned a couple, but you know, the 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 zombie zombie of course is another one of these um it's it's interesting how a lot of these arguments have a um a canonical example that goes yeah. with them so for example um mary's uh jackson's mary argument the knowledge argument the canonical example is seeing red and um inverted spectrum arguments also have to do with seeing colors color figures in in a lot of these but you might say that Searle's Chinese room argument is of a piece with all this stuff, and there the example has to do with understanding Chinese, which is, right. you know, maybe, wh why that example and, and not um, seeing red? Sensory stuff figures again in uh, the Leibniz mill. He, he, says, he says perception. That, yeah, that's well, what he said gonna... something probably in German or Latin, so we don't, I mean... Well, he wrote a... the monadology in French, which was not his oh, language. Oh, I didn't... That was not his, uh -huh. uh, his home language. And he made up a French word. It, uh, apperception is a French word that he made up for the monology, huh. I believe. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, yeah. 
so um, just a little bit of a tangent. Uh, Galen Strawson wrote an article recently in which he's talking about, you know, the history of consciousness and, and how like all these classic figures had this, that, and the other thing to say about consciousness. So I went and went through the monadology in the, uh, in the original French and he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't say consciousness. <laughs> he doesn't use that word. Yeah. He uses, uh, as best as you could tell when he's talking about what we would call consciousness, he's using this word apperception, which to my, or well, actually he wrote this in French. He made, a, he coined a term apperception so uh, anyway i wonder two things i wonder whether that coinage of that term had uh, an effect on uh con con's use of apperception or whether that was an entirely different uh uh thing i mean that's usually how it's translated again i don't know what what the original german word that Kant would have used was i'm not a scholar me neither me neither i i would bet that Kant gets it from leibniz Interesting. And here's another question I want, because Kant was certainly reading uh, Leibniz and, and Leibnizians, uh, Wolf. Uh, Wolf, yeah, when he wrote his uh, inaugural dissertation. So, uh, but uh, um, here's another interesting thing is, uh, um, you know, you say consciousness, and this is something I wanted to get into. Um, and I think at this point, many people know, but too many people don't know uh, that there are these um, sort of standard, easy, and I think, think pretty uncontroversial, I hope pretty uncontroversial distinctions that you can make between consciousness as applied to um, when, when we ask, is this creature conscious, uh, as opposed to being knocked out or in a coma. Uh, we also use the term conscious when we want, uh, in a sort of grammatically transitive way, when we say somebody is conscious of, like I am conscious of you and uh, you are conscious of me right now. Um, and that there's this third usage where we talk about a particular state, uh, let's say a state of awareness, being a conscious state versus being a non-conscious state. So it's still a state of awareness, it's still mental, but it, uh, there, the question stands of whether it has this property of being a conscious state or a non-conscious state. And um, so I wonder what, uh, what, uh, what, you know, when Leibniz uses apperception, uh, I wonder which of those he has in mind. Is it just... Uh, uh, you know, being awake and not in a coma and not asleep and not passed out, or is it um, a state of awareness of something, or is it um, what's what's going on with him there? Do you do you, do you have a do you have a guess on that? I've looked at this recently with that kind of question in mind, and the impression I get is that uh, it's easy to read him as talking about state consciousness when he's talking about uh, apperception. Interesting. Yeah, there's I, a remark. So um, there's there's this one remark where he's talking about what he what he differs on uh, with the Cartesians, and uh, he says this thing. This, 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 this is the petite perceptions thing. The 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 perceptions that are so slight that one might not notice them. Yeah. So he's attributing to the Cartesians the view that all mental states are states of which one is conscious. Mm -hmm. Um, and he is a, um, he's an early proponent of the view that there are mental states that are not conscious mental states. And so you, you get that in, um, probably other places from Leibniz, but you see it in the monadology. Right. So yeah, that's, that's, that's part a... of what he's doing with the contrast between, uh, perception and apperception. Uh-huh. Simple minds, simple monads, they have perceptions without apperceptions. And that seems to just, you know, it, uh, this sounds like he's just talking about like a raw sensitivity, raw sentience, where um, there's a reflective aspect to 
uh, app reception. Right, right. Yeah, my, my impression was that uh, scholars differ on whether this talk of petite perceptions, uh, or I don't know how, to, how he would have pronounced it in French with his German accent, <laughs> but anyway, petite perceptions, uh, whether they are um, uh, non-conscious mental states, so, uh, so that he is, uh, in that sense, rejecting the Cartesian tradition, uh, according to which mental states have to be conscious states. Right. Or is it, um, is he saying something uh, weaker than that? Because that would be a fairly radical departure from the Cartesian. Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think it, I mean, as I read it, it's what you're calling the radical departure. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I, I would like to, I would like to be able to claim uh, Leibniz as, uh, as an ally in this, um, in this uh, uh, battle against those who continue uh, doggedly, stubbornly, and against all available empirical and uh, conceptual uh, evidence um, uh, that mental states have to be conscious, that they're not mental unless they are conscious. Uh, uh, I'd like to uh, claim Leibniz as an ally in that, in, that, um, in that battle because I do think that that is a pivotal issue. That, it seems to me that that is the pivotal issue. And here, let me tell you why. And it connects up with this point about epistemic transparency that I was talking about earlier, right? If if you think that mental states can be non-conscious, if you think that something it's coherent to talk about something as at the same time mental, but also not conscious, if you break the equation of consciousness with mentality, then um, then uh, you're obliged to give an account of what the nature of this mental state is, and that account had better be. Uh, separate from or not appeal to or not involve um, uh, the states being conscious. Um, so you, you have to talk about its mental nature in terms other than, guess what, first person terms. You have to talk about it in, guess what, third person terms, right? And so it seems to me that that's the wedge in it with, 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 um, with people who have this intuition that, that we are epistemically opaque in some sense. Uh, that there's something about us, some special little something that you can never know um, uh, from the outside, from the third person point of view. I think that that's the the wedge in that uh, folks like myself and I think your, yourself as well um, have to take, have to have to have to uh, have to um, uh, employ. Is ask first: Do you believe that there can be non-conscious mental states? Because if you do, then tell me how you characterize those states, given that there is, by hypothesis, nothing that it is like for the person subjectively from the first person point of view uh, for, uh, uh, for, for the subject to be in those states. So obviously it's gonna have to, the, uh, the characterization of non-conscious mentality is going to inevitably have to proceed on third person grounds. It's gonna have something to do with how the environment uh, uh, acted upon that creature, that subject uh, to bring about the relevant state or the role that the relevant state plays um, in uh, uh, in the creature's mental economy, that's separate from first-person access, or the the role that the state plays in producing a certain kind of behavior on the part of the creature, or some combination of all three of those, right? Which would be the standard sort of functionalist um, uh, view. And so, um, it seems to me that when you get somebody to admit that there can be non-conscious men mentality, uh, you've pretty much won the game at that point. You, at, at that point, it just takes, um, it just, it's going to take time for the person, the opponent, to see the implications of what they've accepted. But that's that's really the wedge in. That's the pivot point. Because as um, soon as you admit that there are third-person characterizations of the of these mental states, man, game's up. 
seems to me. It occurs to me this might be a really nice point to to talk about uh, the Kripke argument, which Payne figures centrally in. Although I guess you could see it as um, a, a a broader uh, argument about um, conscious states uh, more generally. Though it's interesting that he does use pain, that he doesn't use, for example, understanding Chinese or right. even or even seeing red. It's pain is his running example. Should and I that, the, yeah, I think that, uh, there's a special rhetorical force that the pain example carries with it. Should I do? Uh, should I do my Kripke impersonation? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Run, let's let's run through the argument. Yeah. So uh, one way of um, stating a lot of what the uh, debates in philosophy of mind between dualists and um, monists, like physicalists, um, one way of stating what those debates are about are uh, whether there are, there's a true identity statement that has um, some kind of form like pain is identical to a certain state of activation of the nervous system. So on the if you write this out as an identity statement, on the left-hand side of your identity operator, you've got a mental uh, term, and on the right-hand side, you've got some kind of physical term, and you're asserting an identity between the two. And um, what a lot of people in philosophy are prone to sort identities into the a priori identities and the a posteriori identities. A priori identities are the no-duh identities. So, for example, David Paraplochik is identical to David Paraplochik. Well, no fucking shit. I mean, who else is he going to be identical to? I just know that a priori that that identity statement is true. And there are um, other identity statements like triangles are identical to three-angled polygons. That's another one that, if anything is knowable a priori, that would probably be a really good example. Um, but if... Um, if you look at a lot of physicalist claims, their their claims, um, for example, that pain is identical to C fibers firing. This is a massive oversimplification of what the neuroscience of pain might turn out to be. Uh, but people trot this out in the, in the in the philosophical literature anyway. That yeah, if pain is identical, something happening in the nervous system is going to be identical to the firing of C fibers. Um, and if you look at that identity statement, it doesn't look like if it is true, if it's a true identity statement, it's not going to be an a priori identity statement. It's instead going to be an a posteriori identity statement. Like, for example, water is identical to H2O. That's not something that simply knowing the meaning of water uh, allow, allowed us to deduce a priori that it was composed of H2O instead of H2SO4. We had to conduct empirical investigations to find out that that's what the chemical composition of water is. So if pain is identical to C-fiber firing, it is, would be an a posteriori identity. And further, uh, and this is a really nice part about Kripke's argument, a very distinctive uh, a aspect of, of Kripke's argument. Uh, we're at a, a half hour a half hour point, right? Yeah. What if I finish the Kripke and then we take our little that break? That sounds right, that sounds right. Um, you know, Kriki points out that it would be really nice if this is an a posteriori identity to also get some kind of explanation of why it's a posteriori. If if x is identical to y, why, why is it that we don't know that ahead of time? And in the case of um, a posteriori identities like water is identical to H2O, 
a very natural explanation, or at least, you know, I think Kripke is pretty convincing on this account. A really natural explanation is to say that um, there is an appearance that is non-identical to the reality. I think in his example, it wasn't water and H2O. It was heat, heat and mean um, molecular energy, right? So um, there's, there's an appearance to heat. There's the way that uh, heat appears, and that presumably has something to do with the way that heat interfaces with our mind or it interfaces with the periphery of our bodies. That's one thing, the appearance of heat. And then there's this other thing, this n distinct thing, which is the reality of heat. So we get this, um, we get an explanation of why it was a posteriori, why we didn't know ahead of time that heat would turn out to be identical to mean molecular energy. And that's because that we, uh, we have these two different things. Um, now heat and is and mean molecular energy are not two different things, but the appearance of heat and mean molecular energy, those are two different things. The appearance of heat is presumably something going on in your mind. Um, and that could have turned out some different way. Heat might appear differently to creatures that live near volcanic thermal vents. Uh, heat appears differently to us depending on whether we were just doing the dishes or, or, uh, having a snowball fight. So um, there's all sorts of things that would might change the appearance of heat without changing the reality of heat. So um, Kripke turns to the alleged a posteriori identity of pains and C fibers firing and wonders whether we could do a similar sort of thing. If that is a, a true a posteriori identity, then there would need to be some explanation of why it is a posteriori, why we don't already know that pain's identical to C fibers firing it would have to be possible to pull apart the appearance of pain from the reality of pain. But then he says, ah, this is what's special about pain. The reality of pain just is the appearance of pain. <clears throat> the painful appearance of a, of a state of pain just is what that state of pain, uh, that, that is that it, the appearance of the pain exhausts the being of pain or the reality of pain. Um, and so that's the epistemic specialness, um, from which he derives a uh, metaphysical specialness. Pain is special in the in the following sense. It's it's a, it's distinct from physical the physical world, physical reality. C fibers, those are physical things. Pain is not identical to them or anything else that's physical, because pain, the essence of pain, is the way uh, it appears to us. And you can relate this explicitly to consciousness by saying, pain. The, the reality of pain is the way it presents itself to our consciousness, or the reality of pain is the way it presents itself to the first person perspective. And so, and this ties in nicely with your vocabulary of epistemic transparency, that the, that the reality of pain is epistemically transparent to the person who has the pain, but it's epistemically opaque to other minds. Right. Right. So if you, if you grant all that, epistemic stuff or all that stuff about consciousness, that it's part of the essence of pains that they're conscious. It's part of the essence of pains that they are presented to consciousness in a certain way. It's part of the essence of pains that they have a certain appearance, in particular that they're painful. Uh, they're painful to a conscious mind. Um, then it looks like that he's going to be able to easily get these ontological conclusions. But as you point out, it's very tempting to say like, well, this is a way to Maybe a way to nip it into the bud is to not to grant him this claim about consciousness, not to grant him that pains are essentially 
conscious. And the real trick is going to be to see who has who has the least number of question begging arguments in their <laughs> argument right. arsenals. So why don't we take a uh, a break? I see no good reason. from the break everybody that was a pretty good break there's a lot of really good music and i think um hilarious movie quotes in that break oh good how is my kripke i thought that was uh i thought that was uh, quite right the only thing that i would have um no i i think what everything you said was was on target the, the only thing that i would emphasize is this uh interesting thing that people seem to focus on c fibers uh, I'm pretty sure Kripke threw that out as kind of like, oh, imagine it was that. Who cares what the real story is? Uh, but, um, you know, uh, C-fibers are something that you hear about in, in, in talk of the uh, neurophysiology of pain. So let's just use that as a kind of catch-all label for whatever the, the messy, gory story turns out to be. Right. Um, but uh, what a lot of philosophers, and Den I think Dennett points this out in his paper, really fantastic paper, uh, Why You Can't Make a Computer That Feels Pain. Um, uh, he's uh, in a footnote in that paper. He 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 says, um, you know, people don't seem to people in philosophy don't seem to actually care about the um, the what the underlying neurophysiology is going to be. Um, that's just you know that's just for the very detail oriented scientists who muck about in the brain. That's for them to figure out. We can just use C fibers as a catch all. Um, and uh, uh, both he and Nicola Grahek, who's the author of the book uh, uh, Feeling Pain and Being, Being in Pain, point out that that's a really unfortunate attitude uh, to take on the part of philosophers, especially philosophers who are um, uh, soi disant uh, naturalists uh, or, or, you know, at least uh, uh, um, uh, um, amenable to a kind of uh, uh, bridge between science and philosophy or amenable to the idea that science should inform philosophy. Uh, uh, um, to some degree, so that might be weaker than uh, naturalism. But anyway, it's very unfortunate that, that philosophers don't um, take care to uh, uh, muck about in the neurophysiological uh, literature or the cognitive neuroscience literature. And um, this is evidenced by the fact that a lot of people see, seem to think that C fibers are um, in the brain, that, that they're in the central <laughs> nervous system. And uh, uh, they're not. <laughs> they're in the peripheral nervous system. And right. uh, they are not the only fibers that are involved in pain experiences. Uh, there's also famously the um, 
A delta fibers, which are um, uh, uh, a much fast, faster sort of myelinated um, pathway through the spinal cord up into the actual brain. And, uh, um, and that's just the beginning of the story. I mean, just the fact that, I mean, differentiating between those two barely even scratches the surface. Um, but even that differentiation, even the differentiation between the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system isn't something that philosophers, um, uh, uh, typically philosophers of mind, even naturalistically inclined philosophers of mind, uh, talk about very, very often. So um, that's that's my big amendment to your discussion, because at some point you said, on the left-hand side, there's going to be a um, mental state term, like pain, paradigmatically. And on the right-hand side of the identity, there's going to be um, a brain state term like C fibers, and um, yeah, uh, uh, you're well aware that C fibers aren't brain states, uh, but many, many other phosphors seem to be, um, or or that, that C fibers aren't brain things that they're that they're in the peripheral nervous system. But a lot of philosophers seem to not be aware of that um, pretty basic uh, fact: yeah. neurophysiology of pain. Yeah, no. So, but other than that, I I fully agree with you. I I found also very interesting in the footnote, another footnote in that Dennett paper, the 1978 paper, why why you can't make a computer that feels pain. Uh, Dennett's going on about Kripke's uh, uh, argument, or actually about things that relate to the to Kripke's argument, and um, he says uh, it seems to be an implication of Kripke's view that if you're in pain, then you believe that you're in pain that what it is to be in pain is for pain to appear to you in consciousness, is, is to present itself in consciousness. And um, it seems that the way that a pain could present itself in consciousness is for you to believe or, or perhaps uh, uh, more strictly to think that you are in pain or to judge that you are in pain. And in a footnote, he says, actually, talking with Kripke, personal communication, Kripke denies that this is an implication of his view. Kripke, doesn't, Kripke thinks that nothing he said in Naming a Necessity commits him to the idea that when a person is in pain, they believe that they are, they think that they are, they judge themselves to be, which, uh, uh, I, you know, and Dennett says in that footnote, well, that just makes the idea of appearance or first-person access, access to pain that much more mysterious. Uh, he says, I, I don't know what Kripke could possibly uh, have in mind here um, if, he, if he denies that uh, implication of or apparent implication of his view and I'm with Dennett here I, I don't you know um, if if Kripke doesn't want to be interpreted in the way that I think most people have interpreted him and in the way that many of his remarks uh, lend themselves easily to being interpreted then I just really don't know what the alternative is um, you know uh, Kripke is a very very smart guy so I'm sure he can uh, I'm sure he would be able to articulate uh, uh, the alternative but I, I, I for the life of me can't can't see what it, what it there's is there's a thing and I think it originates with uh, Roderick Chisholm. When I see it come up, I think it ends up getting traced back to Chisholm. Uh, a lot of people in, in this neck of the woods will say that there's a distinction between two uses of the, uh, of the word appearance and related words like scenes. And it, it's sometimes called a distinction between a phenomenal and um, epistemic sense, or you might say uh, phenomenal and doxastic sense. And, and just as an aside, I kind of hate this general sort of move in philosophy where someone asserts there's um, more than one sense of a word without presenting anything like linguistic evidence that there actually is. I mean, you know linguistics, right? Isn't there, there's like cool tests like Zoigma test and uh, other <laughs> kinds of linguistic tests to see whether 
Quine gets into the, this sort of stuff too. There are these various tests to see whether uh, a, a word has two different senses or not. So for yeah. example, uh, you take the word bank and can you say, uh, I forgot the name of this kind of construction, but uh, you, you say, I went to the bank, but I didn't go to the bank. Is there any way of interpreting that whereby it's not a flat out contradiction? If so, then that's evidence that the word bank actually admits of multiple senses and that you've, you're using it with the one sense uh, in the one case and the other sense in, uh, in the other case. And there's other sorts of tests like this. But anyways, this is a, a move that's frequently made in philosophy. You just assert that there's multiple yeah. senses of a word without actually like, giving any evidence for that. I, th I think uh, that's less, I, I, I can't believe I'm gonna, um, because I hate this move as well, and I, and in particular, this instance of it that you're mentioning, I, th I think is, uh, is a particularly bad piece of philosophy. But um, I'm gonna defend what these people are doing for just a moment here, um, because it's not really clear to me what the distinction is between just asserting it and hoping that the reader consults his or her intuitions, semantic intuitions, and uh, says, yep, I see that there is that distinction. There, is, uh, the, the, there are two meanings for me uh, uh, of, this, uh, of, this, of a word like appearance, for example. Um, uh, so that's, you know, that's what these guys are doing. They're just hoping that you, the reader, um, share their semantic intuition here. So they don't they don't feel that they need to present evidence because the evidence will already be ready at hand to the reader, uh, namely the reader's own semantic intuitions. So I don't see the difference between that so much and then relying on linguistics because linguistics, ultimately, uh, you, you one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to ask people for their linguistic intuitions, their semantic intuitions. So you're going to present them with. Uh, 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 for example, something like, I went to the bank, but I did not go to the bank, uh, and ask them, is there any way of making sense of that? And they'll give you their intuitions about whether there is any way of making sense of that or not. But then you're just relying on people's semantic intuitions again. And uh, uh, so there's really not that much of a difference uh, between you know, going to the linguist and just relying on your reader to have the right intuitions, because all the linguist is going to offer you are other people's linguistic intuitions. Well, to play that game and to try to be charitable to Chisholm and his ilk, one sort of thing people will say in defense of this is uh, consider the um, consider the tie, uh, the necktie example of uh, sellers in um, empiricism and philosophy of mind. So I show you uh, a tie, a piece of fabric. Right? I show you this shirt under uh, under weird lighting conditions, and you are not aware of those lighting conditions. Right off the top of your head, you say that this is a green shirt. And, um, and then I walk you through a demonstration, and I demonstrate to you that in actuality, this is a white shirt, and we were just shining some lights on it, and, and also you had been outside, uh, and it was a really bright day, you were wearing some weird glasses. I explain to you all these things, and you come to see that, uh, okay, this shirt that uh, it seemed to you to be green is in actuality white. You see that the shirt is white. You also believe it's a general feature of, of, this, uh, of shirts that they don't change their colors. Even when you change the light, that the actual color is something that's constant across those environmental changes. So then we go back into the, into the lighting, the, the, the staging, and you still believe that the shirt is white. But once again, it has that appearance. It seems to have that appearance that it had had uh, prior to your learning that in reality it was white. So uh, Chisholm at uh, al. will want to describe what's going on here is that in the phenomenal sense of the peers, 
the shirts phenomenally appears green to you, but doxastically or epistemically, it doesn't appear to green to you. For something to doxastically or epistemically appear green to you, you have to believe that it's that the thing is green, but you no longer hold that belief. You you have come to believe in part on testimony, in part on uh, you know demonstration that you yourself could walk through. You come to believe truly that the shirt is white, so it doesn't it it doesn't um, doxastically seem green to you because you don't believe that it's green. But there's this other sense in which it does seem green to you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people want to say that this sense has got nothing to do with beliefs. There's a way in which you could try to like massage this distinction and all, all on the level of belief. This is something that uh, I think Dennett is attracted to. Mm -hmm. that in the one case, you've got, um, you've got a bunch of dispositions to believe um, that it's green. But then you've got this other belief that it's white and there's kind of a war, there's a pandemonium and the one, the one wins out. But ultimately all we appeal to are beliefs and dispositions to them. Yeah. Uh, we don't create like some other level of the mind which is like a non-doxastic or non-conceptual um, appearance which would be the appearance of, of green. Yeah. But any, anyway, um, I don't know if yeah, sellers let would... Me, actually, let, me, let, me, let me speak to that for a moment actually. Oh, so. Sure. Yeah, well, sorry, I, I guess you were going to go on about sellers, so maybe I should let you go on. because So I here's something that I think sellers would say, and then uh, some other people that you like, for, like, for example, uh, David Rosenthal, um, that there's two, there's, there's two sorts of things happening in the mind, things happening at the level of thought and belief on the one hand, and things happening in sensation on the other. And um, you might be tempted, I don't know who follows this temptation, but you might you might follow Chisholm some degree, and say that um, that in the case of colors, um, the so-called phenomenal seeming that's a, a sensation. You have a sensation of green, uh, but you don't believe that it's green, uh, so you're lacking the um, the doxastic appearance. So mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not super sure what the, the Rosenthal sellers view on seemings or appearance are, but I know that they love a distinction between sensations and thoughts. Yeah, so so there's actually um. Uh, but anyway, we've got to get uh, uh, not to rush you, but yeah, it would be interesting to see how much of this could apply to the the Kripke well, stuff. I was gonna try, I was gonna try to yeah I was gonna try to bring the discussion back around to that. Um, but yeah, make a couple of remarks about what we just said. So uh, look, so th there is a, a debate as to how to interpret sellers. Um, one one way of interpreting sellers is that uh, uh, seems talk or appears talk um, is. When I say it seems green to me, what I'm doing is I'm reporting on a kind of a sensory uh, uh, experience or reporting a sensory experience, which I um, uh, don't take as a reliable um, reliable guide to belief. And so I'm, I'm reporting that I have a certain kind of sensory experience, but I'm um, uh, withholding the, um, the, 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 the endorsement of... Um, of the the belief that that experience would typically lead lead to right um and uh that's uh that's the rosenthal interpretation i take it um uh it's also the mcdowell interpretation uh robert brandom's interpretation is different he thinks there's no report going on at all uh of of any phenomenal or sensory uh or perceptual uh state he uh, does this thing that we were talking about earlier he says well look what would be the um, the social function or the pragmatic function uh, of seems talk, 
uh, or introducing a, a, a locution like seems or appears uh, into an up and running uh, language. And he says all that it does is uh, that it backs off from an assertion that you are tempted to make. So, for example, here I am in the Thai shop. I am tempted to endorse uh, the claim or, or commit myself to the claim that the uh, piece of fabric is green. But um, at the same time, I'm not, I actually, I'm tempted, but I don't, ultimately I don't want to because you've just walked me through all the lighting conditions and so on. So what I say, it seems green, and thereby I tell you what the propositional content would have been um, of my speech act, but I, um, uh, I back off from that, uh, from that propositional content, or I back off from that commitment. And so seems talk, all it's doing, it's not reporting anything at all, uh, it's just um, uh, backing off from a commitment that one is um, one is tempted to make, and it so sounds very of a piece with what uh, Dennett would say. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. But let's bring this back around to the um, to the pain discussion here. So, what's interesting is that that distinction between phenomenal appearing and doxastic appearing, uh, the way you, we, you you just introduced it, and the way that I think it is standardly introduced, is by reference to external things like. Uh, uh, the properties of an object, uh, you know, colors. That's a very controversial example because people believe all sorts of weird things about what colors are. But you know, uh, you can imagine the same thing going for, for let's say, primary quality. Something can sensorially appear. You know, my my computer screen sensorially appears roughly square or roughly rectangular right now. Um, and we can talk about whether it sensorially appears that way or doxastically appears that way, and so on. But we all of this came about in trying to rescue Kripke. We're trying to really just interpret Kripke on pain, where um, Kripke was denying that his view has the uh, carries the entailment that when we're in pain, we believe that we're in pain, and pain is a mental state. It's not a perceptible property of some external object, and so with regard to mental states, it's really much less clear that you can have a phenomenal appearing of them versus a doxastic appearing of them. With regard to external stuff like my computer screen, sure, maybe it phenomenally appears rectangular to me and maybe it doxastically appears to me rectangular to me a little bit later on. But with pain, what would it be for pain to phenomenally appear? That would be like I had a pain and then I had a sensory experience of that pain. And then later on, it, separately from that, I had a doxastic uh, 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 um uh, access to that pain. I, I judged myself or believed or thought myself to be in pain. So this seems like a very strange distinction, even if that's, even if you are happy to draw that distinction um, with regard to perceptible properties of external mind-independent objects, I don't think that that really uh, rescues Kripke. I mean, who knows, maybe that's what he had in mind, but if, if that is indeed what he had in mind, it seems to me to be um, uh, uh, dubious. Uh, uh, because again, pain being a mental state, it's hard to know. It's hard to see how you can have a sensory experience of it. I can definitely see how you can have a doxastic access to it. You know, you have a mental state, and you can believe that you're in that state, just like you can believe anything else, right? But sensing, I don't have. I mean, this is uh, this is David Rosenthal's argument against higher order uh, uh, perception views or inner sensation, uh, inner sense views of uh, of introspection and consciousness. Is that if you were if you had sensory access to your mental states like pains, then you would expect that sensory access to have its own mental qualities. So the pain would have its mental qualities, but your sensory access to that pain would have separate different sensory qualities.
but there are no additional sensory qualities that appear in consciousness. There's nothing, or introspection. There's 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 the sensory qualities of the pain, but your access to the to that pain doesn't introduce a new set of sensory qualities, as it would have to if the inner sense views of consciousness and introspection were uh, were correct. So um, so that's uh that's that's a few remarks about what you um what you were just saying, but uh, I want to get back to where we you know where we started off with, which is uh. Kripke's, uh, Kripke's uh, argument, um, and uh, what's interesting to me is that Kripke himself drew a metaphysical conclusion from it. He drew the conclusion that um, mental states like pain um, are not identical with uh, 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 physical neural states. Um, and uh, a lot of other people have said, no, no, that's too strong, like this is something of, of Levine here. Uh, have said, look, this is too strong. Uh, no metaphysical conclusions fo follow from these considerations about the semantics of um, uh, and 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 the epistemology of, of our uh, uh, mental access and so on. Um, uh, rather, what we should draw is a kind of uh, epistemological dualism, and Levine calls this the explanatory gap. And um, and this is supposed to be an epistemic thesis, so it could well turn out that mental states are in fact physical states of the central nervous system or of the peripheral nervous system or some physical state. But uh, there is nevertheless an explanatory gap, an epistemic dualism, uh, namely that we have no way of, of understanding or um, knowing uh, how a mental state could be a brain state. Okay, And to connect this now back up with the pain literature, um, in a paper by M Murat Ididai, do you, do you know how to, how to pronounce yeah, this? Yeah, uh, Murat Ididi. Ididi. Okay, so I, I bet a lot of people, insofar as they ever think about me at all, probably have a little bit of time, a hard time pronouncing my last name. So it took me years. It took yeah. me years to be able to pronounce your name. Yeah. So this is a this is a difficult thing, and I'm sure. So this is a, I feel his pain because I, I I know many people don't know how to pronounce his name, including myself. But now Ididi. Uh, so Murat Ididi and Donald Price have this book. Or sorry, Murat Ididi has this book. Um, edited volume on pain, very famous uh, volume, probably the, the first thing you'd want to look at if you're studying pain. Um, and in it, he and Donald Price have a paper where they discuss these issues and the methodology that um, that um, cognitive neuroscientists should use in, um, in um, studying pain. And um, what they start off by saying is, look, there seems to be this problem about pain, namely that it is a essentially subjective state, essentially uh, uh, essentially a conscious state uh, that's um, that is um, uh, characterized by its first person uh, appearance. So uh, that has led all sorts of people. That's led all sorts of people to say that there's an epistemological difference between first person access to pain and third person access to pain, and that epistemological difference has led a lot of people to uh, go whole hog and say that there's a metaphysical dualism. Because look, if pain were a neural state, then why wouldn't I be able to know your pain just like you know your pain, right? Why wouldn't I be able to have third person access to your pain if pain really were a neural state? So there's this kind of like modus tollens, right? Uh, since I can't have third person access to your pain, uh, it follows that pain is not a neural state. Right. This is so we get a, a metaphysical conclusion coming out of an epistemological uh, thesis. Right. And so they, they, they air this worry. And then what they say is, well, here's our solution to this problem. We are saying that there is only an epistemological dualism. And I 
at this point, I'm reading the paper and I sort of had to do a double take because I just didn't understand. So here again is the problem. The problem is that if there is an epistemological dualism, that offers an easy and obvious route to a metaphysical dualism uh, by this modus tollens argument that I just said. Because if pains were neural states, then you could have third-person access to them. So since you can't have third-person access to them, uh, they are not neural states. That's the epistemological uh, to metaphysical move. How could it be a response to that move? How could it be an assuaging of that worry that you can move from the epistemological dualism to the metaphysical dualism? How could it be an assuaging move to say, we only believe the epistemological dualism? I, I, I don't, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't yeah. even see how that's a coherent position. If your worry is that the epistemological dualism can lead to the metaphysical one, then having accepted the epistemological dualism, you seem thereby to have accepted the metaphysical one, unless you say something extra. Right. They don't right. go on to say anything extra. <laughs> right. So this this was a very puzzling thing for me to read. I don't. I don't. Um, now I'm not familiar with this article, but yeah. but people do do flesh out the details of this sort of program. And one popular something extra that people offer is phenomenal concepts. True. That True. there's a special concept of pain. <laughs> It, unlike other concepts, like for example, my my concept of a stapler, um, I could acquire the concept of the stapler and or exercise the concept of a stapler without being acquainted with a stapler or without perhaps even staplers being nearby. But allegedly with at least some of our concepts of pain, they bear a special relation to pain itself. That for example, um, uh, I saw a talk, David Chalmers gave this talk at the uh, Kripke conference, a conference in honor of Saul Kripke at uh, the CUNY Grad Center a few years ago. And um, Dave Chalmers described the relationship between the concept and the, uh, the phenomenal experience that it's a concept of in terms of uh, the following sound effect. Zoop, and, and zoop is the sound of the concept sucking up the experience into it. So the experience is, uh, the, is partially constitutive of the concept itself okay right yeah no i i um i think what uh uh idd and uh price i think what they say uh, to be a little bit more charitable to them i guess uh is look there are many ways of filling out uh this uh this strategy there are many things you could possibly say we're not going to commit ourselves to any one of them uh but anyway we just buy only the epistemological dualism and not the um the metaphysical one right and um uh, so yeah, maybe they have phenomenal concepts in mind, and how that would work then is that uh, your phenomenal concept of pain, no matter how much uh, your non-phenomenal concept of pain, your sort of, I suppose, third-person theoretical concept of pain, no matter how much that gets filled in with all sorts of neurophysiological details and so on, uh, you can never see how the phenomenal one could be, could refer to the same thing or could, 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 yeah, could refer to the same thing as the uh, the theoretical, the non-phenomenal one. And so you're always going to be left uh, puzzled by how your mental states, how this thing, phenomenal concept, uh, could be that thing, third-person concept. Uh, but anyway, they are uh, uh, nevertheless um, uh, co-referential uh, concepts. So that's that would be uh, that would be one way of filling in that strategy. And um, I'm not prepared here to uh, to, to mount a um, uh, full frontal attack on phenomenal concepts, but I, I guess I do. Uh, I do think that that strategy ultimately is uh, is is hopeless. So maybe in a future podcast, I could um, uh, have more ammunition with which to uh, 
with which to back up that uh, that sort of um, that sort of claim. But it occurs to me we we haven't talked very much about pain um, uh, specifically, and um, maybe we should uh, maybe we should do a lot of that. We've done a lot of stage setting and setting up, uh, but we haven't actually um, delved into pain proper. I mean, everything we've said so far is just as applicable to um, visual states and to perhaps even cognitive states. Um, uh, rather than being concretely about pain. Maybe, uh, um, yeah, well, you know what? We're close to break time anyway, so let's um, take a, a, a little break, and then when we come back, we'll get to pain proper. Sounds good. I got to be honest with you. I'm kind of inclined to think a lot of the pain debates don't really have much to do with pain. Yeah, I I um I agree with you in, in the sense that um, uh, I mean, sorry, a lot of the pain debates depends on on if you take mainstream philosophy of mind uh, and the debates that go on there. I fully agree with you that that pretty much the only reason that people use pain as their uh, running example throughout their article is because pain is such a vivid, um, memorable, yeah. emotionally uh, laden uh, experience such that you can, um, you can get your reader to focus on, to, to call up their memories of, of being in pain and uh, uh, thereby pump certain kinds of intuitions that maybe it would be harder to pump if, you're, uh, if, you're, if you were talking about something less emotionally laden, less uh, sort of uh, vivid in, in consciousness. So, you know, if you're running example were states of per peripheral vision, right. uh, then uh, you wouldn't be able to, to, to get all these sort of uh, juicy results. Uh, yeah, I wonder, your... you know, like, could you, I, I encounter this with a lot of different uh, Kripke, like if you don't word it in the way that he does, the argument doesn't really feel very forceful. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't, like it doesn't this, strike the reader in the way like, that the thing about you know the the lect could the lectern be made out of ice from the River Thames? Could it be this like <laughs> like the the wording? It seems so like casual and uh, but nonetheless, like when you try to teach this stuff, you realize like yeah, the way he worded it is probably the best way as yeah. far as like making the argument convincing. And the story and goes that it was extemporaneous, right? That it wasn't from notes. That he just came in and said this stuff. Uh, you know, uh, sort of imp improvisationally on the on, on the fly without without having uh, written it out first, and so that makes it all the more. You may have uh, thought about it a little bit ahead of time. Yeah, well, yeah, but still, I mean, you know, to get the exact wording in that way, right? It's really, uh, it's it's uh, there's really there's really something to that. It's, well, even uh, his opponents will grant that he's a genius. 
Yes, yes, that's true. Um, but in the case of the, the argument about um, a posteriori identities, Payne really works for him. He makes the point in terms of be appearing painful. In order to, to be in pain, you're in a state that appears painful. Right. Or um, yeah. and it's you know it's it would be hard to, to make the same argument by replacing being in pain with Searle's understanding Chinese. Right. Right. Yeah. I think um, I think what's what's uh, what's going on in that case is that the the kind of move that I would want to make and that I am ultimately going to press in, in the paper that I'm going to be putting into this volume is um, is one that it's you know it's it's the the move that that Rorty makes basically that we have to reject this um, conception of the mental what he calls the Kripke Descartes conception of the mental where uh, the mental is that realm or that domain in which the um, distinction between appearance and reality lapses um, uh, or makes no sense, right? So that's a that that way of um, thinking about the mind, that very first person um, uh, informed way or first person centric way of thinking about the mind, where mental states are just how they appear in consciousness. Um, that's the move to resist, and that's why pain is such a fantastic example. Is because whereas in the case of maybe understanding Chinese, um, it's uh, um, not so clear that that the state of understanding a Chinese sentence just is how it appears in consciousness. You might think, no, somebody could understand Chinese non-consciously. Uh, and there's abundant empirical evidence at this point that we can understand uh, uh, language non-consciously. Um, uh, there's all sorts of uh, priming studies that would, uh, that would um, uh, testify to that. Um, but with the case of pain, what would it be for there to be a non-conscious pain? What would, there, what would it be for pain to be there but not to appear uh, uh, um, from the first-person point of view. That's the, the reason pain is such a great example is because the appearance-reality distinction really does seem uh, to, to make no sense with regard to pain. And so for people like myself, there's this uh, uphill battle that's, uh, that, that we have to... to, to, to um, there's this sort of job to be done, namely of characterizing pain in a way that is independent of how pain appears in consciousness. So as to substantiate the claim that the appearance of pain is distinct from the reality of pain, that, there, that the appearance-reality distinction makes sense even in the case of something as first-person subjectively vivid as pain, right? And now, uh, in the case of visual states, I think the reason that uh, Kripke wouldn't have gone, uh, wouldn't have done well to speak even of visual states is that philosophers, especially sort of naturalistically inclined philosophers of mind, have recently um, been paying much, much more attention to the empirical literature on visual states. And that literature makes it really quite clear that visual states can occur non-consciously, that visual sensations can occur non-consciously, and that there is a way of characterizing visual sensations independently of how they consciously appear, or in independently of their first-person appearance, or what it's like for one to be in them. And so, the appearance-reality distinction seems to hold strong for even visual states. Now, I think uh, people would a lot of people would grant this, um, but in the case of pain, the relative lack of attention that philosophers have paid to the um, empirical literature on pain, and combined with the sort of subjective vividness uh, and emotional uh, uh, um, ladenness of a pain experience, makes that distinction really hard to sustain for a lot of people. It makes the appearance-reality distinction hard to sustain, and so that's what I'm going to be doing in this paper is sort of trying to give a characterization of pain that is independent of how it appears subjectively. 
and uh, thereby trying to make the claim that appearance reality really are distinct, even in the case of pain. Make out that claim. So um, I'm, how about I try to pretend to be one of the, your opponents? Sure. All right. So here I am. I, I, in advocacy of the devil, I hereby assert that um, if you think that there's something that occurs unconsciously, you're probably making some kind of mistake. You're, you've, you're talking about tissue damage or uh, something like that. Uh, and of course, tissue damage can occur non-consciously. That's what in anesthesiologists get paid for is, <laughs> is to prepare the, the patient to not uh, consciously experience the tissue damage that is going to be uh, an important part of uh, cutting you open. Yeah, what, what would be, what's one of your so-called examples of a, of a pain that's not conscious? Right, right. Tough guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, look, I, I actually think that, I'm going to give a bunch of examples um, in a moment, but I don't know which of them really is uh, uh, the right example of the sort of thing that I want, precisely because um, actual res pain researchers, pain scientists, so anesthesiologists and cognitive neuroscientists and uh, um, uh, pain management specialists and, and so on, uh, they actually have vehement disagreements which are really pain specific. So like I wanted to distinguish earlier from mainstream philosophy of mind debates where pain is playing just this, um, this, uh, 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 this role of like mental state that is especially vivid for which the appearance reality distinction seems to make no sense. And you could slot in any other mental state and the debates would go just the same way. Uh, but there are these pain specific uh, debates in the actual, uh, in the empirical literature on pain that really are, uh, um, uh, uh, really, it really matters that they're talking about pain as opposed to, let's say, visual states or auditory states or, or cognitive states. Um, and uh, uh, those are wide open. Uh, as far as I uh, understand, uh, pain researchers themselves are having a very tough time characterizing uh, pain. Um, and so the examples that I, I am inclined to give, it may turn out that some of them really are cases of pain without um, uh, 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 subjective appearance of pain. And it might be that some of them really are just tissue damage uh, without any mental um, without any mental counterpart, uh, conscious or non-conscious. So I, I um, I'm sort of you know really putting myself out on a limb here by by uh, by giving uh, any examples at all. So I want to just register that. Um, but um, but let's let's let me just start off with a kind of more before I, I promise I'll get to the examples. But let me start off with a more sort of general theoretical um, uh, pitch first. Um, Namely, that when you're trying to, when you're giving um, a characterization of a mental state independent of how that mental state appears in consciousness, independent of what it's like subjectively to experience that mental state, um, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be giving a functional role. You're going to be talking about how that state uh, relates to environmental input. You're going to be talking about how that state uh, relates to other mental states, conscious or non-conscious. And you're going to be talking about how that uh, a state uh, uh, affects uh, behavior, uh, the behavior of the creature. So now for pain, uh, there's all sorts of functional roles that we can, um, that we can appeal to uh, that, that are independent of... Um, so and, and registration of tissue damage is, of course, one of them. So on the input side, pain can be characterized as uh, something that typically anyway... Uh, uh, registers uh, tissue damage or uh, or potential tissue damage. Um, now, of course, this 
when we get into the empirical literature, we're going to have to break that down because there's nociceptive pain, there's inflammatory pain, there's chronic pain, there's all sorts of different kinds of pain. And uh, what I just said might be true for some of them and might not be true for others. But let's say internally, uh, uh, um, putting aside the, the, the stimulus causes of pain, uh, pain has all sorts of psychological um, effects. Pain makes it hard to concentrate on other things. Pain draws your attention. Uh, 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 pain has uh, uh, um, causes certain motivational changes. It causes you to uh, uh, want to get rid of the pain, to want to relieve uh, the pain, to soothe the body part that that uh, uh, seems to you to be in pain. To um, um, so it has these motivational features: to take aspirin, to go see a doctor, to say I'm in pain, and so on. Um, it also makes it hard to concentrate on things. Uh, so it's hard to, if you're in great pain, to play a really good game of chess. It's hard to, uh, if you happen to be a mathematician, to sit around proving math theorems if you happen to be a pain. Um, so those kind of cognitive effects are, are particularly important for me. Those sorts of things are important. And of course, all the behaviors that we associate with pain. So grimacing, wincing, crying, screaming, saying I'm in pain, taking aspirin, going to the doctor. Um, all of those are also going to be um, part of the functional role of pain or part of what it is to be pain. So what we're looking for are states that fit that functional profile, that typically are caused by tissue damage, that typically in turn give rise to certain kinds of motivations, certain kinds of intentions and desires that uh, uh, grab attention in certain ways, that make it very hard to prove theorems and enjoy a symphony and uh, 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 play a good game of chess, and that give rise to certain kind of characteristic behaviors of wincing or crying or nursing or protecting the relevant body part and so on. Does it does it create trouble for you if if it turns out that among the typical effects of of pains uh, is a certain kind of higher order thought to the effect that one is in pain? Yeah, I think I think that um, that's w what really matters to me is that that be a contingent feature of uh, of pain. That pain. So suppose one of the sort of one of the aspects of uh, of of a, of a pain. One one of the sorry one of the aspects of the functional role of pain is that in addition to having the cognitive effects of, of um, making it hard to um, prove a math theorem or play a good game of chess, it also causes a higher order thought to the effect that one is in pain. Okay, So uh, as long as that connection is contingent, and here I don't mean to get into deep metaphysics, I just mean as long as that uh, uh, connection uh, breaks down in some cases, um, that's all that really matters for me. So it could be that pains are most of the time conscious states. Yeah, sure, it could that that could be the case. But there's sometimes they're not. Conscious. Okay, so it, it's not going to be any more problematic for this kind of functionalism than is the fact that you can have phantom pains or you, you can have um, right. local and general anesthetic. Right. Yeah. So it's true. I mean, so all of the things that I just mentioned about pain are. Uh, contingent features of it, right? They, they are things that pain is disposed to do or that typically happens or that happens, you know, in an interesting range of cases. But of course, I recognize, as you just pointed out with phantom pain, sometimes there just is no relevant tissue damage and the person is still in pain. Sometimes it happens that there is a great deal of tissue damage and the person um, is not in pain. Uh, sometimes it happens that a person is in pain, but their uh, motivations uh, are not very... Um, are not uh, strongly affected uh, uh, by by the being in pain. Some, you know, all of these connections yeah. that I just mentioned are just typical. They're just uh, contingent, typical, uh, you know, in a significant range of cases type of things. They are not uh, essential or necessary features of pain. Any one of them can go 
and uh, and the person can still be in, in in pain. It can still be true to characterize them as being in pain. Well, it's I I think it's kind of tricky the way the point has to be made in in connection with things like uh, um, essences or contingency, because there's at least one way of hearing the functionalism that you've got an offer is that it's it's of the essence of pain that there be this network of contingent relationships. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't myself very much like going in for essence talk, um, and insofar as I do go in for modal talk at all, um, I am typically working on the level of uh, nomic modality, nomological modality, or um, um, uh, or of course, you know, we can talk about logical possibilities and logical um, necessities as well. But uh, but so sure, if by essence you mean Look, here, what I'm saying is, here is my theory of what pain is. Here is my empirical theory of what pain is. Pain is this uh, uh, cluster of functional, th this functional role, this, this cluster of, of, um, of um, um, contingent relationships between, um, between stimuli, mental states, and behavior, right? And now, if you want to say that that's, I've, I've made an assertion about essences, okay, gnomic essences then, right? But really, I just want to talk about what 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 pain is in an right. empirical fashion. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. You're you're right that there is a lot to say. I should probably be more careful when I when I use terms like contingent or essential. But uh, anyway, I, I think I've made clear enough what I'm uh, what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to talk about what pain is, and I think that the best way of talking about what pain is is to consider actualities about pain, past, present, or future, um, as opposed to thinking about uh, weird, far-out thought experiments uh, about which we have no empirical information whatsoever. That's that's the general sort of orientation or attitude or stance that I take towards these uh, these issues in general. So, um, so I'm not making a claim about what pain means. This is not a semantic claim. I'm not making uh, any claim that I would take to be a priori. I don't think anything is a priori, but anyway, that's not what I mean. I don't mean this to be a conceptual analysis of the word pain. I just, what I want to say is this is what pain is. Pain is this uh, uh, functional role, this cluster of contingent uh, connections between stimuli, mental states, and, and, and behavior, right? And um, so now to the examples, right? So now what kinds of examples can we, um, can we offer here um, of non-conscious pains? And of course, it also matters to me that sometimes a person can represent themselves as being in pain. So there could be the appearance of pain without the person actually being in pain, right? So that, that's another way of, of drawing the appearance-reality distinction. It's not, I mean, a really good case for me is would be a case where a person is clearly in pain, but they have no appearance of pain. The, the pain is non-conscious. But another equally good case for me is when the person appears to themselves to be in pain, but in fact is not. So then that would be the appearance is there, but the reality is not there. And that would draw a distinction between the appearance and the reality of pain just as well, right? So both of those kinds of cases are, are good for me um, or would suffice to establish my point. So uh, uh, it's um, well known that there's this thing called uh, stress-induced analgesia where athletes or soldiers um, uh, receive a great amount of tissue damage, but they are in the heat of battle or in the heat of, um, you know, athletic battle that is sports. And um, they do not... Uh, they do not report being in pain. It doesn't appear to them as though they're in pain. And um, what I want to claim is that that is a possible case of a person who is, in fact, in pain. Uh, they have sustained a great amount of tissue damage. And um, I bet that they would have a great deal of trouble um, proving uh, math theorems or playing a good game of chess or enjoying a symphony. 
but uh, they're not aware of themselves as being in pain. The sub subjective appearance of pain is absent, though pain itself is, uh, is present. Pain, here again, characterized in terms of this uh, functional role, right? Um, I want to also appeal to uh, dental, uh, dental fear. So this is a case where, um, sort of well-known case amongst, amongst dentists, uh, a little bit less well-known amongst uh, philosophers, but I think it deserves to be well-known, where uh, a person is missing the nerve that connects their tooth to uh, the, uh, their nervous system. So the nerve isn't there. And so drilling in that area uh, simply cannot actually cause pain. Pain cannot be there because the, um, there's no way, there's no transducer, basically. Um, but the dentist, you know, starts, you know, they, they start the drill up and, you know, the person feels the vibration. They are, of course, afraid uh, because there's, you know, a, a weird, you know, object that's being inserted into their, um, you know, orifice. And, uh, and so they, um, you know, they, they say, ow, and they, they, they act as though they're in, they're, they're in pain. They, they say, ah, well, that hurt, that hurt. And what happens is the dentist explains to them, look, that you can't actually be in pain because there's no nerve. Here's some really important and authoritative third-person information about you. And really what's happening is you're just misinterpreting the experience of vibration and fear and, um, and the loud noise and so on. You're misinterpreting all of that as pain. So it appears to you that you're in pain, but you're not. Okay, And so then what's really striking and what you find in the dental uh, literature is that once patients are apprised of this thing, what happens is the, the dentist then goes on and they, um, they, they go on to do their drilling and it's all good. And the person actually says, I'm not experiencing pain. You were right. I was misinterpreting all these other things, the fear and the loud noise and the drilling. I was misinterpreting those as pain. Actually, well, sorry, some, some patients, interestingly, what they say is that earlier, that was pain. But what I'm feeling now, now that you've told me, is not actually pain. So that's that's an interesting thing that some of them actually say that that they mis that they misremember the earlier thing as actual pain. But um, anyway, so and the, you know that you hear about this sort of thing in hazing ceremonies. So in hazing, you might say like you know so you're you're put in this sort of very compromising position. You're perhaps you've been stripped naked, uh, and um, you're you're told that you're about to be lashed with a whip. And uh, there you are, you're expecting a lash of a whip, you're expecting some very, very painful stimulus. And then somebody just puts like, let's say an ice cube on your back, right? And the first thing that happens is you, you it, there's the appearance of pain. There's the appearance that you are in pain because the ice cube, you misinterpret the sort of sudden cold onset, the sort of, uh, of, of the ice cube as pain. And then a little bit later, you might realize, oh wait, that was just an ice cube. And uh, so, so, so there was no pain, but there certainly was the appearance of it, right? So, um, so those kinds of cases are the first shot that I would take. I mean, there might be others that are that are of very interest. By, by the way, this uh, something like the hazing case happened to me recently. But yeah, I don't know if I told you about this, but um, it was phenomenologically really interesting. Mm -hmm. so I, I had heard. Of, I mean, I hang out with you consciousness guys. I've I've heard these cases before. But about a year ago, I was uh, I just made some pasta. And um, I was transferring a pot of uh, boiling hot water over to the sink where the colander was. I was going to, you know, dump the pasta in the, in the colander. And I already had um, some cold water running in the faucet. And there's a splash. And my first, first thing that I thought I experienced was a searing pain. Because it, it looked to me 
that some of the hot water had splashed out of the, the pot mm -hmm. onto my hand. And then I, uh, like within the span of one or two seconds, realized that um, the water that got on my hand was solely uh, very cold water that was coming out of the, the running tap. Here's the really interesting thing. As I came to the conclusion that the water that, that really hit my hand was really not at all hot, my my memory of the the pain started changing. It was really weird. You know, uh -huh. I, I mean, I'm a philosopher of mind. I'm always doing phenomenology and thinking about these things. Right. And I had heard the rumors, and I kind of had believed them that, yeah, right, you can make someone feel like they're uh, having a searing hot pain, even though it's just like a cold ice cube on their neck. And I, and I felt like that's what happened to me, but the memory had a strange property. So now we're, we're kind of talking about the phenomenology of memory here, right? So like if, if, I, if I presented you with something visually, like if I, if I clap my hands, your, your memory of that, just now seeing and he hearing my hands, that has a typical kind of phenomenology. Um, it's tempting to say there's a kind of decay and human vividness or something like that. And, you know, similar sort of thing has to, goes with temperature sensation. So like, I'm no longer touching the cold glass, but I still have this memory. And there's this really fucking weird thing. Uh, as I came to believe that I hadn't been burned, I also felt like my memory of having felt pain was changing. And then after, after like 10 seconds, I wasn't even sure whether I felt pain in the first place. It was really strange. It was really curious. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, my sympathies are in favor of, of the people that say that dental fear, and now this is me not playing devil's advocate, that dental fear is an example in which there's um, awareness as if you're in pain, even though there is no pain. Right. Well, so uh, I, well, anyway, I, I want to report that that was the, the, the phenomenology, especially the phenomenology of the memory. Right. Yeah, by the end of it, I wasn't, I felt the memory changing to be right. a memory of not ever having seemed like I was in pain in the first place. And it's very paradoxical. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I actually, I think you've mentioned this experience in a previous uh, Space Time Mind episode that you did with Richard Brown. But what uh, you, you sort of, you said it very quickly and you guys then moved on to a different topic. And what I didn't get uh, out of that discussion was this new thing that you just said about uh, memory, the memory uh, uh, changing. And that's... Um, of particular interest because, you know, I mean, I have an axe to grind with regard to consciousness because I have a theory of consciousness, right? Uh, it's not mine. Uh, it's, uh, you know, David Rosenthal's uh, higher order thought theory of consciousness. But, you know, obviously we're all aware that there's, uh, there are many different theories of consciousness out there. And Dan Dennett's uh, theory of consciousness is, um, uh, has it that uh, something is, it's criterial uh, of something's being conscious that it get written down in memory and that um, memory is a really uh, how you remember a particular event is in, in a certain sense constitutive of um, how that event in consciousness actually was because of various uh, because of Dennett's uh, you know first person operationalism and, uh, and and various other features of his uh, of his view and so that um, you know, and this gives rise to all sorts of puzzles as to whether, um, you know, whether you have tampered with the actual uh, uh, mental state or merely with the memory of that state. This is memorably in his, his Stalin-esque versus Orwellian right. um, uh, example and so on. 
And so, uh, so yeah, so, so for him, this would be a real genuine puzzle, you know, because, uh, or at least I would be interested to see how Dennett would, um, would analyze your phenomenology here, right? Because it's your memory of the thing, your memory of this, of this experience with the water at the, your immediate memory, the memory, like, you know, two seconds after it happened seems to make the experience a painful one because you remember yourself as being in pain just a moment ago, but the memory itself is changing. And the sort of your experience of the memory itself is undergoing a kind of evolution. And so as the memory changes, either the memory itself or your take on that memory is changing, um, it seems as though the experience that you had initially that set the whole thing off is, is, is changing as well. Right, so uh, I don't know how Dennett would handle that case. There seems to be many variables happening here. There's the initial state, there's your memory of that state, there's how that memory itself felt at that moment, and then there's how that memory evolved over time, and there's how you were aware of it as evolving over time. There's sort of five distinct variables happening in this one case, um, and I'd like to know how um, how Dennett would put the pieces together there because. Uh, you know, like I said, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. I'm inclined to say that that the way he would put the the pieces together is that you've got a bunch of a bunch of things that aren't folk psychological things. They're semi psychological. They're these content fixations. There's a whole bunch of them competing. One of the content fixations is carrying information from my skin that there was cold present. There's a there's some visual contact. Uh, fixations, some of which indicate that the water is splashing from the faucet, others indicating that the water uh, is coming out of the the, the colander uh, where there was hot water. There was an indication that something there was a dramatic change of temperature, but probably the way information gets segregated in the nervous system is not too far-fetched that there would be a signal that simply indicated that something dramatic had happened with regard to temperature without indicating whether it went up or down. And that these things are, are constantly competing for some kind of like final report that's going to be a folk psychological thing, a belief, a belief about how things are with, with respect to my, myself or, or my consciousness. Uh, and that itself might be changing. So I might have initially had one kind of belief about the way things were with my consciousness. And then a little bit later, I had a, a, another kind of belief. But aside from all those content fixations, and these beliefs, there's really nothing else. Right. There's nothing else to say. Yeah, I, I am, I'm actually quite troubled by the possibility. Well, so let, let, me, let me back up. So Dennett, in that paper that I keep alluding to, the um, uh, why you can't make a, a, a robot or a computer that feels pain, or a robot right. that feels pain, whatever it is. The answer to the question that he gives is that, look, we have a very rich and constantly evolving uh, story about the subpersonal mechanisms. And he gives the flow chart. He sort of, I mean, he, he says that obviously some of the, some aspects of the flow chart are very well confirmed by the neurophysiology. Some of them are much more speculative sort of boxology that, that uh, goes on uh, necessarily prior to, um, uh, prior to detailed neurophysiological descriptions and so on. But anyway, he gives the subpersonal boxology. He gives you this sort of very rich subpersonal story uh, uh, encoded in a, in a diagram about uh, all the mechanisms underlying what we call pain. And um, and then he says, but look, pain is not a subpersonal state. I mean, I even agree with that. I, 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 pain, I mean, I think pain can be a non-conscious state, but because I 
unlike many, many people in philosophy of mind, unfortunately, I'm very careful to distinguish non-conscious from subpersonal. There's all sorts of people sloppy about that distinction. People think, oh, subpersonal, that just means not conscious. No, not at all. So uh, I think that pain can be non-conscious, but uh, even I don't think that pain is a subpersonal state. It's clearly a state of a person. Could be a non-conscious state of a person, but anyway, it's a state of a person. And what Dennett says is, um, well, look, we have the subpersonal story, but now pain is a personal level state. So what you'd like to do is you'd like to somehow coordinate those the personal level story with the subpersonal level story. And what that would involve would be drawing a circle around some or all of the boxes in my boxological subpersonal diagram and saying that, that right there, the thing that I've drawn the circle around is pain, okay? And Dennett says that there's just no plausible way of doing that. There's no circle that you can draw that would um, that would uh, that would be clearly the right circle to draw. There, this this personal level category of pain just does not map on in any clean, neat, let alone obvious, but any even any intuitive or compelling way to the subpersonal events. And um, so, uh, so, so the mechanisms underlying what we call pain are just very diverse and they're all contingently related to one another. They all dissociate uh, in a significant number of cases and so on. And this kind of point is also made by Jennifer Korns, uh, aforementioned, the, 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 the woman who's uh, editing uh, uh, um, the, the volume that we're both contributing to. I'm talking about her very non-personally as a, the, the woman who is, uh, but we're all, of course, very good friends with her as well. And uh, uh, Shout out to Jen. Thank you again for uh, for inviting us to do the volume. Um, but uh, anyhow, she argues in her dissertation, and quite persuasively to me, uh, uh, I'm worried about this, that there just is no mechanistic story. There is no set of mechanisms that is pain, that, that is uh, that is usefully uh, identified with the folks, uh, folk psychological or, or personal level um, category of, uh, of pain. And um, I'm worried about that because it makes my paper essentially asking a question that makes no sense because uh, the question is, must pain be conscious? And that question presumes that pain is, is a, uh, a personal level, sorry, that pain is a personal level state, a real personal level state that uh, when we do, when we do muck about in the neurophysiology and the cognitive neuroscience, we'll find some, something that pain is. And, uh, you know, Dennett, um, and, and corns in their own separate ways, essentially say, no, that you're not going to. When you muck about in the subpersonal uh, wetware, you're just not gonna find anything that is pain. Um, pain is, uh, if, if there is such a thing as pain, it's, it's at best the sort of useful psychological, uh, folk psychological construct, but it's not going to be useful for the scientists. Uh, scientists, the scientists, psych psychologists or cognitive neuroscientists categories ultimately in, in the end will not include pain. That it's not real in that sense. It's not real in the hardcore scientific sense. Um, and that worries me, like I say, because I think that would render the central question that I'm asking in this paper that I'm planning uh, a nonsensical question. We're kind of, we're technically out of time. Okay. It's clear to me we need a, a second whole episode. Uh-huh. I thought, I thought that was really cool. We covered a lot of ground and it's very interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. That was good. That was a good one. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, uh, plain, pain was very pleasant today. <laughs> we should, maybe, maybe we should uh, do a, an episode in which we have a completely irritating discussion of pleasure. <laughs>
thanks, uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you are still listening, uh, really appreciate uh, your your time and attention. And thank you, Pete, for, for having me on again. Really, really, really good discussion. All right. Well, thank you. Okay, I'm pressing the button. Do it.